We'll read from Proverbs chapter 1. We'll read the whole chapter, 33 verses. Proverbs chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be graceful, a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us have all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Proverbs are all very fine when there's nothing to worry you. But when you are in real trouble, they're not a bit of help. These are the words of one of the characters in a novel called The Story Girl, written by Maud, uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery, who also wrote Anne of Green Gables. Proverbs are no help to you uh, when you're in real trouble, according to this story. I think Solomon would disagree. Uh, he writes 
the majority of the book of Proverbs for us, and it is the quintessential book of what we call wisdom literature, and this wisdom is intensely practical. It is there to help us in times of trouble. This morning, uh, we're beginning a series based in the book of Proverbs. Uh, We'll have about nine sermons where we're going to look at uh, a series of contrasting vices and virtues, things like pride and humility, or anger and peace, envy and contentment. This morning, we're looking at foolishness and fear. Now, if you're following the pattern there, fear is our virtue this morning. Foolishness is the vice and fear is our virtue. And fear uh, may not sound like a virtue, but in this case it is. Uh, But before we begin that, uh, we need to introduce ourselves to the book of Proverbs. Now, what is a proverb exactly? What do we mean when we say, uh, we talk about a proverb? Well, a proverb is a short, uh, concise, forceful, Uh, expressive way of saying something uh, that is intended to convey to us some advice or general truth for living. Proverb, not just biblical ones, but proverbs in general. We think of Chinese proverbs or ancient proverbs, whatever they may be. uh, They're didactic in nature. They are meant to teach us things, to instruct us in morality or in wise living. The Hebrew word that is translated as proverb means to rule. Uh, It means to be superior to others. So these sayings here in the book of Proverbs within the Bible are superior sayings, right? They're, They're better than other sayings. They are sayings of knowledge and wisdom and understanding and instruction from the Lord. Uh, This makes the book of Proverbs superior even to other types of Proverbs, Chinese Proverbs or whatever they may be. The Proverbs here in the middle of our Bible are meant to give us advice and instruction on how to live our lives wisely in ways that honor and please our God. Now, we need to be careful, though, as we come to the book of Proverbs and understand the type of literature that we're reading. As I said, they're meant to give us general instructions for living life. We have to understand that we can't take every single proverb contained in the book of Proverbs uh, as an absolute promise uh, in the most literal sense. They state the normal results of righteous or unrighteous behavior. They give us principles to live by. Take, for example, chapter 19, verse 4, which says, Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. Well, we all know that it's possible to be poor and have friends, and that it's quite possible for someone to be wealthy and yet to be very lonely. But the proverb is teaching us a general principle that those who have money generally don't have problems making friends and that much of what passes for friendship in the world is actually pretty shallow and selfish. We're eager to be friends with somebody that has money and can buy things and do things for us. But a poor person, they know what they have to offer me. Why should I be their friend? And so this is a general truth But it's not an absolute truth. Poor people can have very good friends, biblical, godly friends. Uh, Take, for instance, the very next verse in Proverbs 19, verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished, 
and he who speaks lies will not escape. Now, I'm sure down through history, there have been plenty of times when false witnesses and liars have gotten away with it. They have borne false testimony, and innocent people may even have been condemned on this false testimony. But the proverb is instructing us that most of the time, your lies will find you out. False testimony will not go unpunished. But it also is assuring us that even if it does appear to go unpunished in this life, we know that the all-knowing and almighty God, who is the judge of all the earth, will one day hold those who bear false witness accountable for the lies that they have told. So we can learn from the proverb that it is best not to bear false witness or to speak lies because they will find you out, and even if they don't, in the end, The Lord knows, and you will be held accountable. So we can see that the Proverbs are designed to help us set a pattern for how we live our lives that will lead to success as the Bible defines it. They seek to provide us with a worldview that will help us live rightly. Uh, They're more than just knowledge. Wisdom is the goal, and wisdom is right knowledge applied rightly to our lives. And to truly enjoy the benefits of the wisdom shared with us in the book of Proverbs, uh, we need to become disciplined so that we consistently apply this wisdom over the course of our lifetime. Chapter 1 introduces us to the theme of the entire book of Proverbs. That's why we're starting here this morning. Uh, The introductory section here in verses 1 through 7 presents us with the purpose of the book and its overarching theme, which happens to be our theme for this morning. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive instruction, the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. So the purpose of the book is to instruct us in wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, that we might know wisdom, not just that we might know of wisdom, but that we would know it, that we would have familiarity with it. Now, this is more than just head knowledge, right? This is knowing that contains an absolute certainty that is gained by experience. This is taking what the Proverbs offer us and applying it in our lives so that we know it to be true. It means to learn with your mind and then put it into practice. It's intellectual knowledge and practical use combined. The wisdom that is spoken of here is the skill to use what you know to produce something of value. The same word is used throughout the scriptures to speak of skill in various trades. It speaks of the skill of carpenters and craftsmen who built the tabernacle in Exodus 31.6. And the word is translated, rather than wisdom, it is translated as skill. Uh, it translated as skill when it concerns the ability of the weavers who uh, made the tapestries for the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, in 1 Kings 3.38, it is the skill of administrators in the kingdom who are helping the king govern and administer the government. It's used to speak of the wise advice of counselors in 2 Samuel chapter 20. And in Psalm 107, verse 27, it is translated as wits. It is the wits 
of sailors who know the sea and know what they are about on a ship. So it's skill that is put into practice. In Proverbs, this word is used to denote skillful living or wise living. Someone who lives in this way produces lasting value from their life. Their works will not be burned up on the day of judgment, but will stand having been tested by fire, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3. And so we are to receive this instruction. Uh, And this word instruction is used three different ways in the scripture. It's used to refer to the parental discipline of a child. It's used to refer to verbal reproof, correction, or warning. And it's used to refer to formal training or instruction. It's use here in Proverbs chapter 1 in connection with wisdom suggests that in this case it is instruction or training in how to live a moral life. And as we see, as we read through the book of Proverbs, this instruction often takes the form of not only giving us positive uh, instructions on how to live, but also demonstrating for us what happens when you don't live wisely, when you, when you don't follow uh, the Lord's way, when you don't follow his instruction, you live incorrectly, and then it tells us what the consequences of that are. So we have both positive and negative examples presented to us in the book of Proverbs, and we'll look at those contrasts in the coming weeks. The first purpose for which Proverbs was written then is to give us this skill to live rightly. And then look at verses 4 and 5. It says, To give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. So following the wisdom of Proverbs will help us set a course for our lives, and it's best to set that course early, to begin young. So younger people, pay attention. The book of Proverbs is for you. But it's not just for the younger people. Even those who are older, who are wise and have understanding already, can increase in their learning. Uh, They can increase in their wisdom. So the Proverbs has something for us all. In verse 6, it says that the Proverbs are written to help us understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. So the goal uh, to be achieved from learning from the book of Proverbs is that we might understand the wisdom of those who are wise, but their wisdom is like a riddle. It's going to take us a little bit of mental energy. We have to stop and think about it. We have to ponder it in order to understand it and, and gain a full understanding of it. But when we set out to learn these things, what attitude must we bring with us? It's one of humility before God. We must fear God as the great I am, the all-knowing and all-powerful judge of all the earth. And so verse 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's our contrast for this morning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and in contrast, fools despise wisdom and instruction. The one who would gain wisdom must fear the Lord, but the one who does not fear the Lord is the fool who despises and rejects wisdom. So Proverbs has put before us a choice. We must choose to either fear the Lord and learn wisdom, 
or to reject the Lord and his instruction and to become fools. And the Proverbs throughout the course of the book personify for us wisdom and foolishness. Right here in chapter 1, wisdom is personified for us, beginning in verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. So, We have wisdom personified for us. She's calling out, offering great blessings to those who will listen to her voice, who will learn from her instruction. But those who refuse to hear her continue in their foolishness, and it leads to poverty. It leads to want. It leads ultimately to destruction. Verse 32, for the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. In choosing between wisdom and folly, we're really choosing between life and death. Proverbs teaches us that there are two courses or paths in life that we may follow. The fear of the Lord leading to wisdom and life or foolishness leading to destruction. Wisdom will help you avoid the company of the wicked who sin with their mouths and with their actions. They delight in foolishness, sin, and death. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 10 says, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. Those who learn wisdom will come to trust God, who is the source of all wisdom and truth, and he will direct their way in life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, very familiar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Wisdom teaches us to treat other people well, Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. And though we know that the wicked often do prosper, wisdom teaches us not to envy them. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. It's Proverbs 3, 31 and 32. In the New Testament, we get to the book of James, which is where we're going to go when we finish up in Proverbs. And James is really wisdom literature in the New Testament, telling us how to live rightly as Christians. And James tells us that it, we all sin with our mouths, with our words. James chapter 3, verse 8 says, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Well, Proverbs teaches us the importance of guarding our mouths so that we avoid gross sins. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 24 says, Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. This is a recurring theme throughout the book, and it teaches us to be like our Lord Jesus 
of whom Peter writes and says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Since wisdom is from God, Jesus is full of wisdom because he is God. And so he serves as the ultimate example of everything that Proverbs teaches us. Wisdom goes on to teach us that the immoral woman, the adulterous woman, sins with her mouth, with her words, in the ways that Proverbs warns us against and tries to protect us from. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So you can see that sin doesn't happen in isolation, right? Sins are often grouped together. Uh, We see this in the New Testament. Often in Paul's letters, he gives us lists of sins in groups. That sin comes in clusters like grapes. It's not an individual fruit. But wisdom guards us against all of these various sins. It guards us against sinning with our mouths, with the immoral woman in Proverbs 5, against laziness in Proverbs 6, against bad companions in Proverbs 6. Wisdom guards us against all these various sorts of sins, anger and envy and lust and greed, lying. And wisdom calls out to those who are simple and who lack understanding. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. That's Proverbs 8, 5, and 6. Wisdom instructs not just the simple and the young, but also uh, the aged and even rulers. Proverbs 8, 15 says, By me kings reign, and rulers decree justice. Wisdom is able to do this and to offer the blessings of a life well-lived. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver, declares wisdom in Proverbs 8, 19. Wisdom is able to offer these blessings of a life well-lived because wisdom is from God. Wisdom has been with God from the beginning. Proverbs 8, 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. And so all who find the wisdom that Proverbs offers find a blessing. Those who spurn wisdom cause their own destruction. Proverbs eight thirty-five and 6, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Well, how is this so? Well, because if they hate wisdom and instruction, if they ignore and spurn the wisdom of the Proverbs, they become all the things that Proverbs seeks to guard us against. They become thieves in chapter 1, adulterers in chapter 5, poor businessmen in chapter 6, lazy, liars, proud, and divisive. Wisdom provides for us numerous blessings in life, but foolishness leads to destruction. 
Therefore, Proverbs encourages us to accept wisdom's invitation, to follow her, to receive her instruction. Proverbs 9, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. And once again in chapter 9, we see that the first step towards gaining this wisdom that Proverbs offers us is to learn the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we're back to where we started in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord leading to wisdom or foolishness, and the rejection of wisdom and knowledge leading to destruction. This is the choice that Proverbs sets before us. But now we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to fear the Lord? All through the scripture, we're encouraged not to be afraid. Right? Do not be afraid. It's one of the most common phrases that we find in the scriptures. And yet Proverbs tells us to fear the Lord. What does this possibly mean? The fear of the Lord comes up over and over again in Proverbs. 14 times in 31 chapters, we are told to fear the Lord. Sometimes there are promises associated with it. It's a powerful phrase that I'm afraid has been overly softened in the modern church. We're usually told that it just simply means to revere God, uh, to be in awe of Him, uh, but not to fear Him in the sense of fear. But I want to suggest that it's more than just reverence or awe. It's not less than that. But it's more than that. The Hebrew word for fear can at times mean something like awe. That's how it's used in 1 Kings 3. If you'll remember, Solomon, uh, at the beginning of his reign, proves himself to be wise and discerning. As the two women come to him arguing over the child. One child has died, one is still alive. They're arguing over whose child this is. And so Solomon comes up with a solution to discern the truth. And after he settles this dispute over the baby, it says in 1 Kings 3.28, And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now I'm sure that there are wrongdoers in the kingdom who at this point feared the king in a fearful sort of way, knowing that, oh my goodness, he has this wisdom from the Lord. He can discern truth from a lie we may be found out and brought to justice. And so there may have been some genuine fear there, but the verse says all of Israel feared the king. I think that most of them feared him in the sense of being in awe of his wisdom, recognizing that God had granted to him this wisdom in order to administer justice in the kingdom and that this was actually good for the people of God to have a king such as this. So there is certainly that aspect of uh, fearing God in the sense of being in awe of his greatness, recognizing that it is good for people to have such a God. But the same word is also used in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3, when it says, Every one of you shall revere, there's our word, his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So here is the sense of fear and the sense of reverence for those who are in authority over us, a fear of your parents, respecting their authority and their wisdom, treating them with respect. But 
This same word is also used in Deuteronomy chapter 2 in quite another way, where it says this, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now, this is no mere respect and awe. This is fear, dread that leads to trembling and anguish amongst Israel's enemies. The same word is used again in the story of Jonah. You remember the the story of Jonah. God sends Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like the people of Nineveh, so he tries to run away from the Lord. He gets on a boat and, and tries to go in the opposite direction. But a storm comes up, and it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here we have hardened, experienced, skillful sailors who are exceedingly afraid. They're fearing for their lives in the midst of this storm that's tossing the ship around like a cork. So the word can have various ranges of meaning from awe and reverence to downright terror, being afraid for your life. How does it apply when it says to fear the Lord? In what sense are we to fear him? Well, I would suggest that when the object of our fear is the holy God Almighty, that it captures both aspects, reverence and awe for his majesty, his beauty, his glory, but also fear, the terror of his justice, his judgment, his holiness, It's not a a trembling dread that paralyzes us into inaction, but it's not mere polite reverence either. Consider the words of Christ in Luke chapter 12. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. They kill your body, that's it, they're done. They can't hurt you any further. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That's a real fear, the sort of fear that causes you to tremble and be in anguish. A God who not only can kill the body, but can cast the soul into hell everlastingly. But it's also the sort of fear that causes us to rejoice. Those who have trusted in God... Instead of trusting in ourselves, instead of trusting in our own goodness, right? we we ought to tremble with fear before an almighty God and the, the thought of his judgment. But at the same time, if we have trusted in his goodness, if we have trusted in his mercy, the mercy of the almighty God, the judge of all the earth, when we might tremble because of his power and because of his might, be humbled before him, and yet at the same time be drawn to him, to the beauty of his majesty and his holiness. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote a treatise on the fear of God. And in it, he draws a distinction between the fear of the Lord experienced by the wicked and that fear of the Lord which is embraced by believers. He says that there is a fear of the Lord that leads to terror and dread at the thought of his judgment. 
but that is contrasted with the fear of the Lord as a loving heavenly father. He calls it an evangelical fear. It's one that causes us to a fear to fear offending our heavenly father. He warns that if the slightest dependence is placed upon any supposed good works of our own, the the fear of God as our heavenly father is swallowed up in dread and terror. If we trust in our own good works, then the fear of the Lord becomes a dread and a terror of his judgment to come. The fear of the Lord that the children of God are to experience is a fear of loving Father, who, yes, disciplines his children, but also punishes evildoers. This is the sort of fear that Christ himself had in his humanity. Luke records for us in chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Well, if if Jesus increased in wisdom as a child, then that means he was learning the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs. It means that in his humanity, he feared the heavenly Father. Not in his divinity. In his divinity, he and the Father are one. He is the Almighty God. But in his humanity, he fears the Lord. Isaiah prophesied and said of Christ, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. So this fear of the Lord that Proverbs encourages us to have is the same fear which Christ himself knew in his incarnation. British pastor Michael Reeves comments and says, It it is not the dread of sinners before a holy judge. It is not the awe of creatures before their tremendous creator. It is the overwhelmed devotion of children marveling at the kindness and the righteousness and the glory and the complete magnificence of their father. This is why the fear of the Lord is not the same thing as being afraid of God. Right? We don't fear the final judgment of God as his children. He has given us assurance in his scriptures that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Our salvation is secure with Christ in the heavenly places. So this is not a fear of everlasting judgment that Proverbs is encouraging us to. It's not a fear of being eternally separated from our God but it is a fear of our sin displeasing our Heavenly Father and parting us temporarily from knowing the warmth of His countenance, the joy of communion with Him in our daily lives. It's a fear that causes us to hate our own sin and to desire to be more like Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, "'Who among us that fears God as He ought?' would wish to do anything, anywhere, which is wrong and offensive to him. A sense of the presence of God, a conscience that promotes, prompts one to say, Thou, God, seest me, fosters in the soul a heaven, healthy fear, which you can easily see, would rather inspirit than intimidate a man. 
It is a childlike fear in the presence of one whom we deeply reverence, lest we should do anything contrary to his mind and will. So then there is a fear which arises out of a high appreciation of God's character and a fear of the same kind which arises out of a sense of his presence, a holy fear that leads us to dread anything which might cause our father's displeasure. So we ought to fear God with this holy fear of our good and loving Heavenly Father, a holy fear of the Lord that drives us, doesn't drive us away from God, but drives us closer to Him, the sort of fear that inspires us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, as it says in Psalms 2:11. And Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. How is fearing the Lord in this way the first step on the path to skillful living? Well, think about what happened in the garden. The Garden of Eden, God had created Adam and he put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. And he gave Adam instructions The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Adam didn't have that knowledge. He had no knowledge of evil at that point. No experience with it. He didn't know what it was. But he he knew what the consequences were because God had told him, if you eat of that tree, you will die. But when Satan tempted Eve, he told her that she could have that knowledge apart from God and without consequences. The fear of the Lord should have constrained Adam and Eve. They should have trusted God to reveal to them the knowledge that they needed when they needed it. Instead, instead of trusting God, They sought to become independent of him, to rely on themselves rather than on him. In the same way, the fear of the Lord should constrain us from sin. It should teach us to trust God, to trust his goodness, his provision, his love. We don't have to envy the wicked or the prosperous because we can trust in the Lord. This is true knowledge and wisdom. But what does Proverbs say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They despise it. We often think of a fool as someone who lacks common sense, right? They just don't have the normal amount of good judgment, and so they get themselves into trouble. But the scriptures tell us that the fool is someone who despises wisdom and instruction, The first step, the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, is to fear God. But the fool, instead of fearing the Lord, he looks down on it. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, the scriptures tell us in Psalm 14. The fool thinks it's distasteful to believe in God or to fear the Lord. The fool has no fear of the Lord in his heart and his mind. And if the fear of the Lord means to trust God, to obey Him, then the fool chooses to trust something other than God. And what does he trust? Well, Proverbs tells us in chapter 28, verse 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Now, this is the wisdom of the world. The world tells us to trust in our own hearts. 
We're told all the time, trust in your, follow your heart, trust your heart. But the scripture says to do so is to become a fool. We shouldn't trust our sinful hearts. We should trust God, trust his wisdom. He knows good and evil. He knows what's good for us, much more so than we know for ourselves. When we trust our own heart, we become foolishly self-confident. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16 says, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. When we trust in our own heart, evil becomes a delight to us because our hearts love sin. And so Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23 says, To do evil is like a sport to a fool. They delight in it. It's like fun and games. When we trust our own heart, we become untrustworthy. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8 says, The folly of fools is deceit. When we trust our own heart, we end up slandering other people. Proverbs 10, 18, Whoever spreads slander is a fool. When we trust our own heart, we stubbornly cling to our sin, refusing to let go of it. Proverbs 13, verse 19, it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. They hate the idea of departing from their sin. When we trust our own heart, we, we don't even see the evil of our ways. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. We become prideful. The mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. Proverbs 14.3. And when this happens, we come to hate true knowledge and wisdom. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. We come to despise it, it says in verse 7. The fool who does not rightly fear the Lord despises the wisdom that comes from trusting God. From tr but trusting only in his own sinful heart, the fool refuses to be instructed. He rushes headlong towards everlasting destruction, ignoring all correction and all discipline. There are two paths in life, the fear of the Lord leading to wisdom and life or foolishness leading to death. The entire book of Proverbs has as its goal the instruction of those who fear the Lord. In the coming weeks, as we consider topics such as uh, pride or anger, greed, envy, laziness, lying or lust, learning the lessons that Proverbs has for us on these various topics is dependent on our rightly fearing the Lord, rejoicing in His wisdom and instruction, humbling ourselves before Him, admitting that, that we're sinful, that we're wrong, that we lack understanding, that we need His instruction. And with trembling, desiring to please our Heavenly Father, fearing the loss of closeness that comes when we follow our foolish hearts. At the same time, resting confidently in the knowledge that our sin has been dealt with by Christ. That if we humble ourselves, if we confess our sins, repent and believe and trust in Christ rather than in our own sinful hearts, he will forgive us. And once again, he will smile upon us with the light of his glory. Now, if you would know the fear of the Lord and embrace wisdom, I would encourage you to do two things. 
First, I would encourage you this year as you read through the scriptures, and I hope that you are reading through the scriptures, that as as you read your Bible this year, to pay special attention to learn to see the Lord as Almighty, to learn to see him as the judge of all the earth who always does what is right and true and good, to learn to fear him as such. We spoke two weeks ago uh, on the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Father, in the Lord God Almighty, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, to understand the holiness and the might of the only living God, the one who is almighty, who is just and holy and righteous, is a truly terrifying thing. He created all things with a word. All things continue to exist by his power alone. He's perfect, altogether pure and holy. Thankfully, he does not judge us on the basis of his power and might. He doesn't expect us to be powerful. But he is almighty, and he expects us to be obedient. As his creatures, we owe him our obedience fully and completely. And so he will one day judge the world, all people, on the basis of their obedience to his perfect law. And none of us will live up to that standard. Our only hope is to plead the righteousness of Christ, that he obeyed the law for us, that his righteous life is given for us. So as you read the scriptures this year, look in the scriptures for the holiness of God, for the power of God. Learn to see him as almighty. But you can't stop there. The fear of the Lord is not just fearing him as the almighty judge of all the earth. That would drive us from our sin with trembling, humbly begging for his mercy and his grace. So as you read, also make note of the grace of salvation that is offered to sinners in the gospel, of the fatherhood of God toward his people. And when we find his grace in the person and the work of Christ, learn to trust in his sacrifice of himself in the place of sinners, knowing that it is only by the application of his righteousness to us that we can be spared on that day of judgment, that we can stand before God and declare him to be not just our God Almighty, but our Heavenly Father. This is to know the true fear of the Lord. When we experience the knowledge of God, not just as our Creator, but also as our merciful Redeemer, then we begin to fear Him, not with terror, but with rejoicing. We begin to learn and share the fear of the Lord, which Christ Himself had in His incarnation. Only then can we rejoice with trembling, as the Psalms say, in awe at the power of God, the Father Almighty. Apart from knowing God as our Father, the fear of the Lord results only in seeking distance from Him, in searching to to hide from Him, to run away from Him as Jonah did. Or as it says in Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. This is all the men of the world on the day of judgment hid themselves 
in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When we don't know God as our Father, this is what the fear of the Lord produces. But when we fear God as Father, then we desire to see his face. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. The God who had that sort of power to speak a word, let there be light and light shone out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So my prayer for us this year as a church is that we would learn together to fear the Lord as the Father Almighty, to walk in the way of wisdom as the people of God, and to know that our God has promised, saying, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Our God has promised us this, and so we can rest assured that if we read his scriptures and learn to fear him rightly, he will teach us to walk in the ways of wisdom. Let's pray.